Well, good morning, Warrington Bible Fellowship. So good to be with you this morning. So thankful, right? I, mean, I preached from this pulpit at 8.30 this morning. Yes, some people wake up at that hour and go to church. Um, at, at, at 8.30 and uh, declaring the gospel, knowing this also, that I get to come again, declare it yet again for this service because that is exactly what you would desire for me to do, right? Preach the Word of God. Preach the Scriptures. Preach Christ. Preach the Gospel. I'm so thankful for your pastor who has faithfully, week in and week out, gotten behind this pulpit and preached to you the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. How blessed you are, right, to have Pastor John as your pastor. So thankful for him. Pray for him while he is, while he is away and pray for me as now I take his very big pulpit and try to fill those shoes. Hey, uh, you know that I once was asked a question. Uh, it was actually in a pastoral interview. Uh, I was asked, what do you think, Zach, is the number one thing threatening or plaguing the church today? What's like the number one thing? And I gave a good pastoral answer. I said, well, there actually there's three. Right? Because you need three points and then a poem right at the end. Uh, so, I, well, there's at least three. I said, the first is biblical illiteracy. Uh, people don't read the Word of God, and a lot of them, when they try, they don't know, they don't understand it, they don't know how. So the first is biblical illiteracy. The second is separating Jesus and the church, right? Um, that's very popular in our, our day. Like, you follow Jesus, all I need is Jesus, all I have is Jesus, there's only faith in Jesus, Christ alone, faith alone, you said it. That means I don't need all you, Right? And, and, and so it's like, well, well, actually, no. There's actually nothing in the New Testament knows nothing about someone following Jesus and being baptized into Christ and not at the same time being baptized into a family of God with other brothers and sisters and other people following Jesus alongside of them. We follow Christ in community. That's a, this is a team sport here. No lone rangers. Matter of fact, when someone doesn't come to church, right? If they're a family member, that's like, uh, you know, when you have a, you meet for the dinner table, right? And there's a chair, and someone's missing. They're not in it, right? You experience that even when a child goes off to college or something, right? And something's missing. Something's missing. How good is it when they come home? How good is it when everyone's home for a supper, right? Again, church, we are a family, right? And if you don't come, there's someone missing. Something's just not quite right. Or uh, like a body, Right? Like we're, we're called a body, members of the church, members of one another, the body of Christ. And so when we come to worship, if someone's not here, it's, a, it's like a missing, we're worshiping but only with one arm, right? Or on one leg, okay? And of course, if I didn't show up this morning, we'd be missing a mouth. I know you were thinking it. <laughs> we're, a, we're a body, we're a family. That's the second thing I said, plaguing the church, separating Jesus and his church. And then third was a pessimistic view uh, of, of the church's mission and future. We're all going to die. This is all horrible. Look at the world. We have no chance. We might as well not even try. Right? It's like, come on. Uh, matter of fact, that, that's talking about not the family of God, but the mission of God. 
As a matter of fact, the mission of God for the church, through the church, the mission of God, the Great Commission, we're just getting caught up into the mission of God. This is God's mission, not ours. We're not making this up as we go. He swept us up as he goes, right? We're getting caught up in this gospel story of redemption. So it's God's mission, not ours. And I'll tell you what, if it's God's mission, I think we can be pretty optimistic about its success. If God's the one doing it, empowering it, we can trust in Him. So yeah, preaching a pessimistic view of the church's mission and future gives God no glory and man no motivation to obey the Great Commission. Those are the the second two, but that first and primary one is the one I want to talk about today. That is, the thing threatening the church today is biblical illiteracy and is likely leading to the other two. You know, uh, this is actually going to be a part two message. There's a part one, the Word of God part one. This is the Word of God part two, if you kind of notice from the screen. Uh, You you can go online, Veritas Church VA, and you can see part one. I sent a link to Diane, so if you just ask her, I'm sure she can put that into your hands. But last week, what we talked about was the divinely inspired Word of God and how God, from those original writings and all the Old Testament and New Testament, how He sovereignly worked out over the course of generations and generations, scribes transmitting the Scriptures from Hebrew and Greek over and over and over again, all the way through generations, for then for it to be translated, even into English, and for us to now have a copy of God's Word in our hands. And how incredible that is, that God sovereignly worked all that out, using even fallible man to do so. How much more glorious is He So what's the problem then, Zach? We all got a Bible. Matter of fact, the problem is a study was done in 2017, about five years ago, said actually that 87% of all Americans own a Bible, like somewhere in the house, right? Like it's somewhere, but they can find it. They know they have it. 87%. That's almost nine out of every 10 households in America have a Bible. Again, what's the problem? Well, the study also showed that over 50% of them never read it. And I don't mean like Genesis to Revelation, read the whole entire thing. I mean have never read any of it. Over 50% have never read any of it or claim to have read very little. I don't know, bits and pieces. Right? So the problem is not, has God preserved His Word and brought the Word from generation to generation even into our households and hands? The problem is, We rarely read it, and when we do, it's hard to understand, especially the Old Testament. It seems that even some pastors today want to do away with the Old Testament because it's so hard to understand and surely doesn't apply to us. You know, yeah, I mean, you can't teach something that you've never learned yourself. Sadly, like separating Jesus and the church, we've also separated Jesus and his word. Uh, like, I've not, I've not been a pastor my whole life. Like, I had to go to church, right? And uh, when I was in Bible college and seminary, likewise, try to find a faithful church. And we went to Bible college out in Washington State, and, and we went to seminary in New England. That was hard to find a church in New England. Any New Englanders in here? Amen, right? Yeah. Difficult, difficult, brother. You'd be changing denominations and everything, just trying to find somebody who preaches the Word. 
Sadly, like separating Jesus and the church, we separate Jesus and his word, and we have churches telling people to believe in and follow Jesus, to get the gospel right, like faith in Christ's atoning work alone, right? And yeah, by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, yes, and follow Jesus, yes, okay, now come to church and let me tell you my story. Now, now all of a sudden the pastor, you know, come to Jesus, but then come to church to hear my anecdotal TED Talks about my life right? And I'll sprinkle some Bible seasoning on top, right? Is the Bible seasoning to be sprinkled on top of our already made up beliefs, desires, and pursuits? And just sprinkle a little Jesus on top? No, now, those of you who like a good barbecue like me, if the Bible were seasoning and we were the meat, We would be called by the Scriptures to marinate our lives and our souls and our minds and our hearts in the Scriptures. Marinate in them so much so that we begin to think like the Word of God, talk like the Word of God, feel like the Word of God, love like the Word of God, act like the Word of God, and maybe even taste like the Word of God. We just have Bible coming out of our pores. This morning, let us open up and marinate in the Scriptures. And first, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Gospel of John, chapter 1. As we look at the indivisible relationship of Jesus Christ and His Word. I hope by the end of the sermon, you're going to understand that you cannot separate Jesus and the Word of God. Though I'm sure, Warrington Bible Fellowship, you already agree with that. For the two are one, and you cannot have one without the other. Because you know what John does? It's interesting in John chapter 1. He talks about Jesus as the Word. Like like Jesus and the Word somehow go together and and, and can't separate them. Like Jesus as the Word. The Word as Jesus. What is going on there? John chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Wait, hold up a sec. Are you talking about like the Word, like that He spoke? Or are you talking about Jesus? Oh, verse 2. He, not just it, He. The Word is He. He was in the beginning with God. And yes, all things were made through the Word or Him. Again, yes, All things were made through him, through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. That's an interesting thing. Why does he not just say Jesus then? Why does he even even say the word? Now, if you look at the Greek word for word, it's logos. Okay? And it's not logos, by the way. Uh, Logos. Those are two omicrons. O-O. Omicron. Logos. Everyone say Lagos. One, two, three. Dad, thank you so much. Yeah, you'll do Pastor Zach well to hear you say that. I'm not sure how Pastor John says it, but um, say Lagos. Lagos. Yes, Lagos. The Lagos. Okay, so what is the Lagos, right? So we have theologians that want to get into the idea of what is the Lagos, because there's a lot of Greek culture 
that, that, that's going on. And there are a lot of Greek and philosophical ideas about what is the logos. There's Plato and there's Aristotle, and they talk about the logos as being, hmm, the great, like, knowledge of truth and of all meaning, and that all of us, as we seek and we search meaning and truth in life, it is the logos. But the logos is not like an actual person. I mean, not even maybe necessarily even a being, but it's just kind of there. And then they're like, well, yeah, but then, uh, this is what they say. They say, yeah, but then the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, no, he doesn't become flesh. Is that what he's saying? Is that what, is that what John's trying to get at, the logos and Greek philosophy and Plato and Aristotle? Because you know what? There's actually a lot of other things that Greeks believed about the Lagos. The Lagos could also be the perfect human, kind of like a Jordan Peterson thing, right? Like the perfect human. You know, the Lagos is the perfect human that all of us, if we want to be perfect, perfectly human and well-rounded in every possible way, that is the Lagos. Now, that is true of Christ, but again, they don't believe that that becomes flesh. And again, that's just a Greek philosophy of the day because there's a third thing that people in Greek culture would believe, and that's that the Lagos uh, just means word, or message, which means that, uh, like, you ever have someone come bring you a logos of encouragement, right, a word of encouragement? It just means like a message of encouragement. Or you can say, man, Zach was really preaching the word today, right? He was bringing the word, right? And that's just the, the message. So it could also mean just word, and that's why you have translated in your Bibles, word. And also, I don't, you probably already know where I'm going to go with this, I don't think that John is worried about trying to get fit Jesus into Greek philosophy, right? Like, here, give me your, your Plato and your Aristotle and let me, like, sprinkle a little Jesus on top. No, no, no. Yes, he's writing to a primarily Greek audience with Jews also, but I think what he's telling them to do is, come into the Scriptures with me and let me take you all the way back in the beginning. Let me... What is John even trying to do right now? He's trying to tell his readers who this person Jesus is. That's his goal, right? It's a gospel account. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. All of them have a different place to start. Where should John start? Should I start when I first met Jesus? No. Jesus goes back before me. Should, should I start when Jesus was born? No. Because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who took on flesh, right? And, and, and so I actually got to go back even farther than when Jesus was born. I got to go even back to when before all of creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Even before creation, Jesus was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Even when the first Word was ever spoken, it was by God. And that Word that He spoke, interesting enough, like, I think that this was Jesus as the Father willed creation, Jesus himself accomplished the Father's will. So that Colossians be true. All things, or even here in verse 3, all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. Willed by the Father, accomplished by the Son. All with the presence of the Holy Spirit. The power and presence of the Holy Spirit who was what? Hovering over the face of the deep in creation. So John wants to take us all the way back to the beginning, the genesis of everything, and say, Jesus was even there. In the beginning was the Word. 
And he makes this connection between the Word of God and the Son of God. And he wants us to think of these two as going hand in hand. As in creation, the Father wills it, the Son accomplishes it through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit because the Son does what he sees his Father doing. This is true both in creation, but then also in redemption when the Word becomes flesh. Remember what Jesus says in John 5, 19-20. Jesus, talking to his disciples, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will I show him so that you may marvel. I love that last line right there, so that you may marvel. Uh, We pray that often at Veritas Church, just asking and praying uh, and and just saying, God, would you just show up and just show off for your glory so that all of us can just marvel? Like, wow, isn't God awesome? Isn't God incredible? That happened one time when we prayed, God, I don't know how this is going to happen, but can you have us somehow worship in Old Town Warrington? Isn't God awesome? Isn't God incredible? That's right. The Son, though, here in verse 19 and 20, the Son of God perfectly obeys the Father's will. Both in the creation of the world, when it was first created by His Word, John says He's doing it again in redemption, in the redemption of the world. John 3.16 says what? But that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Just as in the beginning, so now the Word made flesh, once again, is going to accomplish the Father's will. The Father who sent him to accomplish it. Consider with me Jesus as the divine Word in Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. See this correlation even back in Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven... And do not return there immediately, right? Like, it doesn't come all the way down, stop, back up. No. No, it has a purpose for why it came down. What's the purpose? Well, to water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout. Did that a lot last week, didn't it? Giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is true of rain and snow which come from the heavens. It is true of the Word of God which comes from the mouth of God and from the Word of God as we preach it. We know that it will not return void or empty, but will accomplish that for which God is sending it forth. And this is true of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who came from heaven like the rain and snow to accomplish the Father's will on earth. And He will not return void. But He accomplished all that the Father sent Him to do. Death on the cross, third day, resurrected. He overcame the world and bringing many sons to glory. John 1, 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, like communion, 
we, like you, we don't believe that uh, communion actually becomes the body, right, and, and blood of Christ. Still takes like bread and juice, right? Doesn't actually become that. So likewise, if you accidentally spill some, you didn't spill Jesus' actual blood, right? Same thing, as you hold the word of God, you're not actually holding Jesus in your hand. Matter of fact, I think there's a song that says it goes the other way. But we must see this correlation and this oneness between Jesus and the Word of God from the beginning and when he took on flesh to accomplish all that the Father sent him to do. So if we want to know what like, it looks like to obey God, like, you're like man, I just want to please God. I want to live, live a life pleasing to the Lord. Right? I want to image God. That's what I was created to do. Right? If you want to see what it looks like to obey God and all that he commands, all that the Father wills, look to Jesus, the Son of God. Or as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Our goal in life is to become more and more like Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. If you want to see righteousness, the righteousness of God, the peace of God, the love of God, His law, His commandments, His promises, look to Jesus, follow Him, obey Him, and image Him. Not only can we look to Jesus and see all of, of God's law and promises fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus says that we can actually look at God's law and prophets and see Him. It goes both ways. We look to Jesus and we see God's Word made flesh, and we look to God's Word and we see Jesus. <laughs> Not only do we see Jesus as the Word, we see Jesus in the Word. And this is extremely helpful for us that Jesus teaches us how to read even the most difficult passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Jesus himself says, I am in them, and they are all pointing to me. To be able to understand all of the, what happens in the Gospels, and even what happens in the New Testament, we should be able to understand all of the New Testament and everything that happens and why it all takes place the way that it does because the Old Testament told us exactly how it was all going to happen and how it was all going to take place. Like, like that's, that's why when the New Testament writers wrote the New Testament, they quoted so heavily from the Old Testament. The Gospel writers, as they're looking at Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all doing this. They're looking, they're making sense of the gospel, sense of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and even Pentecost. Yes, the church is also in the Old Testament, right? That'd be a pretty big thing to miss out on, 2,000 years at least of church history. That's in there too. They, what did they want? Why were they writing? They wanted the world to know that the king and his kingdom, which was foretold and foreshadowed, has come. And we have beheld his glory. Jesus, after his resurrection, teaches his disciples and us how to read the Old Testament. Do you guys remember when Jesus uh, met his two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Remember that? It was after Jesus rose again from the dead, okay? So Jesus died, and he rose again on the third day, but these disciples didn't know about it. Right? So they think Jesus is dead, it's all done, it's over, 
right? And, and, and they're sad and upset, and they're walking down the road to Emmaus. And then what, what happens? Jesus comes to them, but he doesn't reveal himself to them. They don't even know that it is Jesus, right? They think he's some kind of stranger or foreigner who just, just showed up, right? Because Jesus asks them the question, why, why are you guys so upset? What's wrong? And they act up, like even upset that he would even ask. They, they say, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who, who, who doesn't know what just took place? They're upset. They're upset. They, they tell him. This Jesus of Nazareth, whom we thought was the Messiah, has died. We had hoped that he was the promised one. We hoped that he was the Messiah. We hoped. But. And what does Jesus do? Now, if it were me, maybe some of you that are a bit rotten, I just imagine Jesus wearing a hood. You know, maybe like that's why they couldn't tell that that's who it was. Like maybe his hood was kind of drawn down a little bit and there's black on his face and maybe it was a nighttime road to Emmaus. I don't, I don't know, right? But maybe he had a hood on or something. Like if it were me and they just said that and they're crying, they're upset, Jesus died. I'd be like, ha ha! Here I am, right? I'm alive. It's me, look. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. Actually, he says, here I am. You should have known. He actually rebukes them for not believing what God had already told them through the prophets. Look, here I am. Yep, death on the cross. Third day, rise again. And he rebukes them. Luke 24, 25 and 27, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Necessary. These things had to happen. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus reveals himself to them the same way he reveals himself to us and has done for the past 2,000 years and will continue to do. Reveal himself to us through his word. We cannot separate the two. Jesus shows us how to read then the Old Testament. It all points to him, to the church, the, the, the totus Christus, uh, Jesus, that's just a Latin word for Jesus as the head, the total Christ, Jesus as the head, and the church is called his body, right? So the, the two. It's all there. It's all right there. We first understand, of course, the historical context of the, of the Bible. You all have been taught that extremely well. I already know, right? Uh, that, that when we read the Old Testament, we've got to figure out, all right, who is this guy? Who's that guy? What's this place? What's going on here? Who's she? Right? Like, we're, we're figuring out all the historical context. David, Goliath, what's a Philistine, right? What, what's going on here? This battle of champions of some sort, right? Is that a common, common custom of the day? What's going on, right? Why are the Israelites so afraid? Like, okay, we're, we're figuring all that stuff out. But then the next step after you do that good historical exegesis is then you say, how does this apply not to my life? That's not the first one. That, I mean... That's if we're at the center of the story, but we're not. 
Jesus is. First is, Jesus said, how it all applies to him. So then that means we're looking to see how does it apply to Jesus, and then, only then, how does it apply to us? That's why we can say, oh, Jesus is the champion who goes out to fight the enemy of God on behalf of the people of God. Right? We're the Israelites, scared, uh, right? And we're scared of slavery to the Philistines. And no, Jesus is the one who defeats Satan's sin and death. Jesus is the one who conquers the enemy. And then what happens? The Israelites are emboldened because of the, the victory of the champion. Then we say, yes, let us go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The Old Testament first applies to Jesus and then applies to us. But we don't know how that applies until first we apply it to him. This is how all four of the gospel writers did it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So that means you don't have to be, oh man, we missed out on the best Bible study right on the road to Emmaus ever. I mean, that would be awesome. And I, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm, I guarantee you that sermon was a lot better than this one, right? I mean, I know. But here's the thing. We, he told the disciples. He showed them how to do it. He showed them how to read the Old Testament. Don't you think they told the rest of the disciples as well? Don't you think that's what everyone was doing in the New Testament as they were writing? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They were just telling the world what Jesus told them on the road to Emmaus. It all points to him and to his church. It's incredible. Now, I could give you guys just a few examples if you'd like. You know, maybe... uh, Maybe like the temple in the Old Testament, the temple. It's an important piece of furniture. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a really important thing, right? The temple in the Old Testament, that's a very important thing, an item, the temple, place of worship, place where God dwells in the Holy of Holies, right? So it's not only that Jesus fulfills the prophecies of like riding on the colt of a donkey, like, yes, of course. But even in the imagery, like everything in the Old Testament points to Christ, even just in the temple, um, you know when uh, John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? The word for dwelt, tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Wait, you mean kind of like the temple, but when it was like temporary and they moved around in the desert? Yeah, like that. Yeah, Jesus is, actually in John's Gospel, Jesus is constantly warring against the temple. Right? He says some bad things about the temple, and they say, oh yeah? Right? And what does he say? Look, tear down the temple. And then in three days, I'll rebuild it. And then John says, we, we didn't realize it till later that he was speaking about his own body. Why? Because God wasn't in that temple made by human hands. God was dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ. God became man incarnate, and he was tabernacling in a tent of skin, if you will. And he called 12 disciples. You mean like the 12 tribes of Israel? Yeah. And remember how they all followed God in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? Yeah. Yeah, then now he chose 12 disciples and they're following God around, tabernacling among us. Everywhere that he goes, they go. And when they stop, they stop. Just like in the wilderness and the desert. Uh-huh. Bam, right? And then what about the church? Well, in the book of Ephesians, it says that God is actually building a temple as well. Right? A house for his name. He is building a house for his name and for his glory. And what is that temple? All to the temple draw near. Where's that? 
You're here. It's the church. Now, it's not the church brick and mortar, this building. I used to think when I was a kid, God lived in the church, right? No running in God's house. Yes, ma'am. Right? So I used to think this was God's house, this is where he lives, and then we leave and we come back to God's house next, next week. We, the church, we are God's house. We are God's temple that he is building. Ephesians says, one living stone at a time. God dwells in his house, his church. Wow. So even with the temple, the temple was, was, was to show us Christ and the church. Okay, what, what about another? Again, again you've got to always first apply it primarily to Jesus, secondarily to us. What about the sacrificial system that happened all within the temple as well, right? This is really important, right? Because um, people will say, why do you guys still believe some things in the Old Testament but not others, right? Like, what about, why don't you, like, sacrifice animals anymore? Well, again, apply the sacrificial system to Jesus first and then only apply it to us to see what's left over, if there is anything, or how it comes to us. In what way do we benefit? Or what are we called to do? Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb, amen? I'm not the perfect spotless lamb, are you? No, Jesus is. He atones for our sins, right? Mm -hmm. He dies in our place on the altar of the cross, taking on the full wrath of God to our sin. The Passover, everyone familiar with the Passover in Exodus? Right? When, when God passes over, right, and doesn't kill any of the Israelites because they applied the Passover lamb's blood to the door, that's when the Passover first began. And they ate of the Passover and celebrated the Passover of their freedom from Pharaoh in Exodus, in Egypt, right? That's when the Passover begins. But the Passover finds its end in Christ, who is the perfect spotless Lamb of God. That Lamb only existed to glorify and foreshadow the coming of the perfect spotless Lamb of Christ, who brings about a greater exodus from the slavery, not of Pharaoh, but of sin, Satan, and death. Jesus puts an end to all sacrifices. He's the once and all sacrifice and now in christ we are blameless and spotless in christ amen in christ now we we get the benefits of that so we get the benefits of christ and we eat a new passover jesus ate the last passover of the old covenant and and he instituted the new passover of the new covenant which is communion even understanding why in the heck do we eat communion because we eat of the passover we eat of the Passover lamb, body and blood, who brought about a greater salvation, a greater exodus, a greater freedom. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. He's also the high priest who offered himself up on the altar and who now intercedes for us. He fulfills all of it. The Passover, therefore, fades away. The sacrificial system fades away. For the old covenant fades away. But only as the shadow gives way to the substance that formed it. I want you to see the Old Testament and Christ here in the Gospels. See the sun shining here in the New Testament. But shining a light onto Christ. And, and what shadows do we see? The book of Hebrews says, these are the shadows the temple is a shadow. The sacrificial system is a shadow. The Passover is a shadow. They all exist to foreshadow and point to Christ. Who's the fulfillment of it all? 
So then the question is asked, well, why then? What about, and this one's really important. Do you mind if I give you one more? Cleanliness laws, clean and unclean, ceremonial laws. In other words, you'll hear this in culture. Um, why, why is it that you eat lobster, right? You wear fabric that is mixing, right? But you call homosexuality a sin. I thought you believed all the Old Testament. See what I mean? Why do you say these things go away, these things are fulfilled in Christ, but you don't say these other things are? That's a good question, but there's, there's a good answer to it. Again, we just have to read and understand the Old Testament. Cleanliness laws, or ceremonial laws, they also find their end in Christ. So any of those cleanliness, unclean laws, or the fabrics, the food you eat, things you touch that make you unclean, right? They find their end in Christ. Why? Because we've been made clean in Christ. Christ has made the unclean clean. It's as simple as that. Christ has made the unholy, that's Leviticus, be holy. Why? For I am holy. And if you're not holy, you don't get to come worship. That's a big thing. Think about that. The fact that they couldn't come worship the living God. Because why? They were unclean. Remember? If they touched something unclean, if they ate something unclean, or if they ugh, had something growing on them that was unclean, right? Or if they were sick, if they were unclean, then what did they have to do? Remove themselves from the community. They couldn't come and worship because they were unclean. Lepers had to say, unclean, unclean, could not come into the presence of God. But what do we see in the Gospels? All who come to Christ, all the unclean lepers, all those who are unclean. Remember the woman who touched Jesus, who was unclean, all those who come to Christ become what? Clean. You can't make Jesus unclean. God makes the unclean clean. The unholy, holy. Now that's important for us to know. We don't just say, oh, fulfilled in Christ, so we don't need to know it. No. That's important to know that apart from Christ, you're unclean. That apart from Christ, you're unholy. That apart from Christ, you don't get to come to the Father. And that apart from Christ, you don't get to go to heaven. That apart from Christ, you don't Get nearness and closeness in the presence of God, for He is holy. And we get to praise God all the more because we know this, that in Christ, you who were once unclean, unholy, and unable to come into the presence of God, now have been welcomed in because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, all God's people should say, and hallelujah. So likewise, we need to know, well, what about the other thing? What about like, homosexuality and all these other things, like, or, or murder and all that stuff. Is that for, like, well, likewise, first, we need to know what is sin. Who gets to define it? You or me? Or who? Only God gets to define what is sin. The moral elements of the law, okay, so we talked about sacrificial systems, ceremonial laws. Let's talk a little bit about the moral laws and elements of God's law. They must still be obeyed. I mean, we can eat lobster now, Thank you, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For it's been made clean. But we cannot now commit murder and adultery. These are sins which God has forbidden. These are sins which require death in the Old Testament. You remember David when he prays in, uh, oh gosh, Psalm 50, help me, season saints, 51? When he prays in Psalm 51, you remember what he says? He says, if you, does, if you required an offering, I would give it. But guess what? David murdered a man. 
His friend, actually, if you study that. He murdered his friend to take his wife. No, actually, he took his wife first, then he murdered him. There is no offering for that. There is no bull, goat, or, 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 or pigeon that you can give for that. That requires for David to die. That is death. Right? Life for life. That's why Jesus had to die in our place, and that if he didn't die in our place, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And blood of bulls, goats, and turtle doves can't adequately atone for our sin. And they knew it. That was just the shadow. That was just the shadow. We cannot go on now sinning, disobeying God like we once did. We must walk now in newness of life and in righteousness. But we need God's law to tell us what is righteousness, what is sin, and what is good. Amen? Matthew 5, 17. He says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, notice that all is accomplished. Many things from the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and others are still being fulfilled through his Spirit-filled church today and for the past 2,000 years. And one day Jesus returns, and only then will all be accomplished. Let's just make sure that in our generation and for others as you pass the baton, pray for the next generation that we would work with God and not against God in all that he desires to accomplish in and through us. So we've looked at Jesus as the word. Now we've seen Jesus in the word and how to understand all of the word, which is to point first and apply first to Jesus. Hopefully just with those first two points you can see that you cannot separate Jesus and the Word. The two go hand in hand. Now I've had some people say this to me and maybe you've heard them say this to you. I mean your middle name is Bible. That you guys make too much, too much about the Bible. You make too much about it. Like you make, you make it like it's all about the Bible but it's supposed to be all about God. You ever heard that? I've had someone say, you basically worship, I don't know if they're trying to be cute or clever, but they said, or both, but I thought it was neither. Well, they said, you basically worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. So you know what? Are you telling me then that I should only trust God and have a relationship with God, and that this is somehow less than that? Right? Isn't that what it, what's happening there? As if for me to elevate the Bible, somehow they think that, I'm, that, that God is, goes down, or that if I, we elevate God in relationship with Jesus, that the Word somehow falls under here priority-wise? These go hand in hand. <laughs> right? Because, look, if, if I'm a liar... My word lies, and you can't trust my words, then you can't trust me. 
If you can't trust a man's word, you can't trust the man. Those two, if you can't trust God's word, then you can't trust God. So not only do I think that's foolish to try to do so, to separate God and his word, but I actually think it's satanic. Why would I say that? That's a, that's a big statement. Because Genesis 3.1, Satan tried to do it with Adam and Eve. What did he say? He said, did God actually say Right? Because if I can get you to doubt his word, I can get you to doubt him. Satan knows how it works. He's not foolish. He's quite wise. Schemer. Right? If I can separate you from the word of God, I mean, of course, you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you love God. But if I can separate you from his word, from his promises, right? If I can get you to doubt his word, I can get you to doubt him. Satan wants to separate God and his word in order to cause doubt of God's word so that we don't use God's word against him, like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Remember that? Matthew 4? I mean, that's incredible to think about that. Jesus, uh, he's going to be first tempted by Satan with food. I think if Satan wanted to tempt me first, he'd probably go with food too. Anybody else? Yeah. So he doesn't, that's applying to me first. Ah, I'm not supposed to do that, right? And instead, of course it's with food. To show what? To show that Jesus is the new Adam, right? Because Adam and Eve were tempted with what? Food, yeah. It's Adam, it's, but Jesus is going to be victorious where they failed. And verse 2 says, after, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights, that should make us think about Jesus basically being like a new Israel because they were led out into the wilderness for 40 years, right? Um, oh, 40 days, 40 nights. I think I, I think I see what's going on. And they were tempted with hunger, food. Uh, verse 3 and 4. What's Jesus going to do? Is Jesus going to still trust God for leading him out there by the Spirit? Is he going to continue to trust in the Father, that the Father knows what he's doing, even though he's really hungry, he's getting really hungry? It's been 40 days, 40 nights, right? Now it's, now it's coming to crunch time. Do I trust God? Do I trust his word? Do I trust his promises? Or do I just command these stones to become bread? Because you know what? I'm starving. Satan tempts Jesus. In verses 3 and 4, look with me. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan tempts Jesus to satisfy his own hunger and not trust God's promises. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which indeed goes back to Moses talking to Israel about their temptation in the wilderness. Perfect verse to quote. Yeah, have you guys ever read Deuteronomy 8.3? Moses speaking now. Moses says, And he, that is God, speaking to Israel, and he humbled you, Israel, and he let you hunger. He let you hunger. He let you hunger. That was intentional. He did that on purpose. He let you hunger. 
And then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Have you ever been hungry for the word of God like that? Has God ever made you to hunger for his word? I mean, like, um, I mean, I've had it so bad where my, like hunger pains, my stomach, just a pit in your stomach. You ever had that? A pit where you know nothing else could satisfy. Actually, sometimes you stop eating because you're so depressed or you're so, just, you know what I mean? You're hungry. You're hungry, but you're hungry for the word of God. When you go, have you ever just like cling to God's word? Have you ever been there? If so, that was a blessing that God was doing in your life. Why? Because he taught you to hunger. But he taught you to hunger in a way you never hungered before. He taught you to hunger in such a way that you cling to his word and said, God, I just need a word from you right now. Right? It's like a Job sort of thing. Right? Like I've talked to all my friends. They don't quite get it. You know what? I, I don't even need that right now. I don't need anything right now. I can't even eat right now. I can't even sleep right now. God, I just need a word from you. What's going on? Why are things this way? What's going on with my family? What's going on with my loved ones? What's going on with this world? Have you ever been there, hungry? When only the Word of God can satisfy. If so, then you know where Jesus was after 40 days and 40 nights being tempted in the wilderness. You know then what it's like to be Israel, starving, brought out of Egypt, but now like feeling like you're going to die doubting God, doubting His Word, doubting His promises, or at least tempted to do so. And then you would know exactly how the psalmist felt in Psalm 119, 25-40, when he says, My soul clings to the dust. That's from where man has come, right? So my soul clings to death. Give me life according to your Word. When I told of my ways to you, you answered me. Teach me, O Lord, your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me. I don't want any more lies. I just want your truth. And graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. God, I've already chosen to obey you. I have chosen to be faithful to your word. I just need to know what you want me to do. I just need to know your promises. I need to know how to pray. I need to know how to think. I need to know how to move forward. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. So let me not be put to shame. Because why? Because I'm trusting in you. Let me not be put to shame for trusting in you and your word. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Because right now, feeling small hearted. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statues, and I will keep it to the end. To the end of what? Maybe to the end of this trial? Or maybe to the very end of your life? But I will keep your word, and I will cling to your promises even in death. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. 
Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach of people that I dread, for your rules are good and not be ashamed of them. Behold, I long for your precepts, and in your righteousness, give me life. Warrington Bible Fellowship, we have life through Jesus Christ and his word. For from God's word and God's son, we were created, all things were created through him and for him. We would not even have life apart from his word, and therefore we, our life cannot be sustained. Oh, that he would teach us to hunger, so that we would know that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. People might try to be cute and clever and say, Jesus, we can separate him from his life-giving word, but no. Jesus says, Jesus who is the word, who is life and light, says you cannot separate the two. We're going to end with this. John 5, 39 through 47. Jesus talked to the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, they claimed that, that they loved God's word and that they had life, eternal life, even in his word. And they, were, they said they were trusting his word. One thing for you to always believe and always remember as you read the gospel accounts, the Pharisees are a bunch of liars. They're fake, they're phony. Don't believe a word that they say. They sit in the seat of Moses because they like the glory of man. Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Really. Jesus is not buying it. When it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So you say you're trusting in the scriptures, but the scriptures are testifying to me, but you say you want to keep the scriptures, but reject me. He says this, I do not receive glory from people. I, I don't need your affirmation here, <laughs> right, Pharisees? I don't need your approval, Pharisees. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You say you love the Scriptures. You say you love God. But you reject me, then you don't love the Scriptures, and you do not love God. For I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Now, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him, of course. But how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I'll tell you who you love. You love yourself, and you love people who will glory in you. And then, yeah, sure, you'll glory in them too. You love yourself. You don't love God. You don't love his word. You love you. Verse 45, now do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Jesus doesn't need to accuse them before the Father. He says, there's one who accuses you already. Moses accuses you. On whom you say you have set your hope. For if you, belie if you believed Moses... Okay, Jesus is not buying it. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? If we, at Veritas Church, 
And if you, Warrington Bible Fellowship, if we collectively together are going to be a Christ-centered, gospel-centered church, then we must be a word-centered church and a word-loving church. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot receive Jesus and reject his word, nor can you claim to have received his word and yet reject him. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Amen? When people, we're going through our core values series, right? Our first core value is to be centered on the word of God. When people ask you, Are you centered on the Word of God or are you centered on Jesus? Simply reply, yes. Let's pray. Father God, we are centered upon your life-giving Word. Indeed, O Lord God, we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from your mouth. Lord God, even as we hunger, even now, God, for lunch, Lord God, I pray that you would remind us that our every hunger and our every longing in our souls can only be fully satisfied in Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And in your promises, O God, we hold on to and we cling to. God, we cling to your Word and seek to obey it now. And even on our deathbed, we will trust in the promises of of God. You cannot starve a man who is feeding on the promises of God. Oh Lord, satisfy our souls. Strengthen us by your word when we go forth from here and declare your glorious gospel to a world who desperately needs it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, that was basically like three sermons in one. How'd you like that? Yeah? You only had to pay for the one. You got two for free. Jesus, yeah, as the word, in the word, and the word. Okay, come on. Uh, hey, if you actually are hungry, you're probably full from eating all that word, right? I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, first service said I should hand out doggy bags afterwards, right? So we can, yeah, take some home and eat it tomorrow for lunch, you know, like, uh, that was a lot. So, hey, thank you all for having me. Uh, I hope that it was a blessing to you. Absolutely. It's always a blessing for me to preach, uh, for all of you and to serve you all the word. So thankful. Uh, thanks to everyone tuning in online as well. As we go forth from here, Let us receive the benediction. Would you all stand for the benediction? comes from Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen? Amen. You are sent.